Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled. Uh, That's where I tell my story of life after alcohol, and uh, I tell my story there, and then I invite you to share your stories here. And before I introduce today's guest, I want to say, uh, in true Canadian fashion, I want to say sorry and thank you. So sorry for the terrible audio I gave you on uh, last week's interview with Mary. Um, And thank you to the nice listener who wrote in and said, so were you in the bubble bath in the bathtub or were you doing dishes while you recorded that episode? Because there was water running. (laughs) There was all this noise. Uh, It turned out I had the wrong mic active rather than the expensive mic that was right in front of my mouth. Uh, The studio was recording with an ambient mic. So uh, no, I wasn't in the bathtub or doing dishes. That water running was my um, oil diffuser, which is like 10 feet from my desk. (laughs) And I was horrified when I found out uh, that you could hear all of that. But the guest was so wonderful that I left it up for you. So if you... um, if you listened to that and wondered what on earth was going on here at my house, it was just me being uh, ditzy. And uh, I triple checked my mic today, so I'm hoping it all sounds good because I have another wonderful guest for you and I don't want anything to detract from you uh, enjoying what she has to share with us today. So today we're joined by Ingrid, who tells the story of quitting habits in her life that were very entwined and related to food, to smoking, to drinking. And more importantly, now she is in a process of recovery that involves reclaiming her self-love and acceptance. So Ingrid, I'm so glad to talk to you again. Thank you for coming on the Bubble Hour. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Jean. This is such a thrill. It was so amazing to get to meet you uh, at She Recovers in New York City. And I'm just beside myself. I'm so excited. Well, and we, Ingrid and I um, recognized each other from an online group that we both uh, are a part of. And so we kind of sat together uh, at lunch, but then there were so many people and so many people (laughs) to talk to that we just had like a brief conversation that was super interesting and then both kind of got distracted and never got back to it. And so I was like, you just have to come on the bubble hour (laughs) and share your story uh, so that we can finish that conversation. So thank you for doing that. So without it, uh, and I appreciate it. You know, you said that this show helped you, and like yeah. now you're paying it forward, and I think that's so beautiful. Um, oh, it's really true. I don't know if you remember, but I burst into tears when I <laughs> when I met you, <laughs> which I did not plan. Uh, I was just telling you that uh, listening to the Bubble Hour in the beginning of quitting drinking, it was just constantly on. Um, even at work, I just had it playing in my ear and. You just got me through it. It was amazing. So thank you. Well, I mean, that's, and that's a tribute to everyone who's ever been on this show and shared their story because yeah. the voices of other people in recovery are just like water on a thirsty plant, right? <laughs> when you're new, totally. like, you just cannot totally. hear enough. And, yep. um, and so it's, it, I don't know. I just love it that it's like come full circle for so many guests. And um, that's recovery. That's what the whole thing is about is like, we we grasp a hand and we're pulled up and then we offer a hand and we pull the next person up and okay yeah. so um, get into your story and uh, I know that you took some time to put some thoughts on paper so um, <laughs> yeah. so just it's share only with us it's only about bit. ten reams of <laughs> my life story um, it's amazing how far back I went um, but uh, I guess I'll start with my alcohol recovery because it's sort of the more immediate thing. Um, I quit drinking finally, uh, April. Well, the most recent attempt, um, was April 15th, 2016. So about a year and two months ago. Um, so, I mean, I, the longer I go, uh, not drinking the earlier, I feel like I am in recovery, uh, which is a little weird, a little backwards. Um, I think at around two weeks, I thought I had it done. I was good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now I'm like, Oh God, so much more to learn. Um, but, uh, Wait, and but I really like, feel good anyone, about that. For anyone who's listening and is like two weeks sober, it, that's huge. Like it is huge to get those two weeks under your belt. But the it's reason amazing. we're laughing yeah. is because like 
the farther you go, the more you learn and you never run out of stuff to learn. So no, yeah. you don't. And, and things just get revealed to you as you go. You don't even have to go after it. Although I tend to go after things and, and self-reflect constantly, but um, yeah, stuff just comes up and you're just better equipped to deal with it, but it's pretty amazing how much comes up <laughs> um, over time. But um so when I when I quit, um, and I had been earnestly trying to quit since probably January of that year, uh, so it took me a few rounds uh, till April to stop uh, with continuous days. Um, obviously, now I'm a year and change, but uh, it took a while from my perspective. But when I was initially trying to stop, I really didn't think I had that big of a problem. Um, I really thought to myself that I was a very, I think I called myself a very high bottom because I was so educated on the alcohol world, um, self-educated, Google educated. Um, <laughs> so I, I walked into some like 12 step meetings uh, in West Seattle where I live and um, I just really felt out of place. I was like, Oh, I'm just nothing like these, these people. Um, and, uh, and I sort of talked myself out of going to more because I was like, well, the last thing I need to feel right now is like a loser who's not fitting in, you know, with this other group. Um, so I'm just not going to go because that's how I felt. Right. So it was all this circular thinking. Um, so I decided that wasn't for me. So uh, I Googled away um, and ended up finding a whole bunch of different things online, which is really remarkable. And I'm so lucky that I tried to quit drinking at this time in history because <laughs> um, there was just so much uh, available to me. Uh, and I came across obviously the bubble hour um, and uh, the uh, booze free brigade, the private online uh, Yahoo group and Facebook group. Um, and I just got a ton of help there. And then about um, a month into, you know, finally a month, full month uh, sober, I came across the Hip Sobriety School, which was uh, run by Holly Whitaker. And uh, she's younger than I am, and she had this very kind of interesting alternative. She calls it a modality for quitting drinking, which um, was meant to really help you design a life that you don't want to escape from instead of uh, worrying so much about one day at a time or healing your disease. You know, some of the language that I objected to with 12 step programs, um, it was all about the positive aspects of not having alcohol in your life. And I felt like that fit my very high bottom self better. <laughs> and, and, and by, by the way, um, more recently, I realized uh, how not high bottom I was. I had a lot of very big problems going on, um, and you know, drinking was one of the main causes of it. And uh, so that's interesting to sort of reflect back on that. But at the time, that's how I felt about it. Um, so I was desperately seeking alternative ways to think about quitting drinking. Um, and then, uh, but, well, actually, I should go back a little. Two weeks after quitting uh, for that solid two weeks, which had taken a lot to get to, um, I decided I sort of had it licked and I would now quit smoking, which a lot of people said, don't do that, don't do that, it's too much. Um, but I really believed I'd been trying to quit smoking for a long time. I really believed it was sort of my only chance to quit smoking um, because I always went back to smoking when I was drinking. You know, I'd have too much to drink and then I'd have that just one cigarette. And I was like, well, if I'm quitting drinking, I might as well quit smoking. Um, and so th those two big things were sort of going on at the time that I signed up for uh, this hip sobriety class. And one of the things she said in that class was that we should pay close attention to the people who have what we want, um, that our desires in our life are generally rooted in things that we already have or that we already are. And that really struck me because um, I hadn't really thought about that. I thought about, you know, sort of my fantasy life was out here um, and my real life was in here and they were really far apart from each other. Um, but that made me think, and I, I <laughs> took, took stock a bit, stepped back. Um, and I realized that a lot of the time the women I wanted to be like, were super healthy, but also super rebellious. <laughs> they were strong. They were often physically bigger women who just happened to have great style, who glowed, were kind of badasses. They, you know, wore messy top buns and worked in creative fields. And, you know, these were the kinds of women that I was always really drawn to and wanted to be like. And 
uh, it wasn't like skinny women who didn't look like me. It was these women who were kind of taking what they got and turning it into something that they owned and, and loved. Um, so I started thinking about that. Um, but at that time, you know, I was still in sort of week three and four quitting drinking, and I was staring at the wall um, from 5 to 8 p.m. every single day, thinking I was such a high bottom, but I <laughs> couldn't think of a single thing to do uh, from 5 to 8 p.m. Um, so I was just eating dark chocolate and all the carbs I could get my hands on um, because all the advice I got was do whatever it takes to stay sober, right? Like, don't worry about food. Food's not a big deal. Um, and I was genuinely just terrified like a deep terror um all that advice about eating and that the weight will just come off and don't worry about it like it's not a big deal sugar is a good thing to turn to it's better than drinking etc cetera, etc cetera. we've all heard it um for me it was literally like a slap in the face it was a bunch of thin women telling me to just relax about food and i felt mm. like it was just insulting um that they didn't understand how deep my battle with weight and food and self-confidence um, in my body, how deep that ran. And it was just this flip advice about who cares, blah, blah, blah. And I was just pissed. <laughs> and I really felt like this, there was something wrong with the recovery community, that it wasn't dealing with people like me in a way that made me feel safe, um, which, by the way, I don't know why I blamed the recovery community, but that was how I felt in the moment. I was like, stop it. Stop telling me this because I'm terrified. I was scared I was going to fall into this abyss of just eating literally whatever I wanted all the time, and I was going to have to be carried out of my house in a piano box because that's mm. what would happen if I let go. Um, so I started thinking seriously about drinking again and smoking again because I didn't want to gain as much weight as I imagined I would gain if I ate whatever I wanted. Um, and it was probably better to be thin but sort of sick in, on my inside, sick mentally and sick probably physically. Um, it was just better because I would look more normal. Um, and I realized in that moment when I was going down that train of thought that wasn't the right choice. Uh, so uh, I started to think harder about, like, well, what is this? What is this, like, kind of Pandora's box that's opening up for me? Now that I'm quitting drinking and the shame of drinking is lifted and all that those bad feelings are gone and I'm waking up feeling good and rested and generally healthy, like, why do I feel this deep terror? Um, so I started to really think about my history, and this is where the 10 reams of story <laughs> comes in. Um, <laughs> but uh, it really, I mean, I really believe that I started drinking and smoking to, to get thin um, or to... Uh, with drinking, it was to both like replace meals, um, but also to uh, feel attractive for a minute, like not feel trapped in my body. And it just let me out of the jail that I was in. Um, and smoking was, you know, sort of well known as a thing that suppressed your appetite and helped you not get too fat. And so I started smoking really young. Well, there are people who have started a lot younger, but it was like, I think I was 13 when I first started smoking both my older sisters smoked my dad smoked everybody smoked it was the 80s <laughs> and uh and I just thought you know well this will be the best first step and then eventually drinking came in um, but this was all rooted in incredibly early childhood body hatred um and shame around that uh and so I just um wanted to take a step back and figure out like what I think, you know, I think everybody has their sort of thoughts around the trauma or the root causes of why they drank. Um, and for me, it was just so obvious, uh, but I didn't want to live with it anymore. I wanted to get better and kind of recover from that um, instead of, I don't know, going back to dieting and, um, and that whole cycle of, of feeling not worthy. I'll pause there, <laughs> uh, and I guess I'll, I'll take a step back. I'll start with, like, sort of where the body stuff started, but it was uh, really from almost at birth. I mean, I don't remember birth, but um, when I was around four or five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully my mom doesn't remember it either. Um, but, I mean, even as a really, really little kid, I was chubby. I was just sort of born that way. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who sort of gained weight in their adolescence. I was, I started out that way. 
Um, and at around four or five, I remember an old lady neighbor um, pinched my cheeks and said, don't worry, honey, um, you'll, you'll lose that baby fat. It, it'll go away. Um, and that was one of the first memories I have of, like, intense shame for being fat. Like, it was just this benign comment where this neighbor lady, I, and I, by the way, I look at pictures, and I'm like, oh, my God, I was so not fat. I was just chubby. I was cute, actually, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she, she was like, don't worry, you'll, you'll grow out of it. But something about whatever message was going on in my home with my older sisters who were six and eight years older, everybody was already so socialized or socializing me to believe that fat was bad, that that was just an incredibly shameful moment for me. And I was like, Oh shit, you know, I better lose weight like at age four or five. Um, so, and then, you know, I mean, obviously it came from my family to some degree. Um, my mom from a really young age was sort of worried about me, worried that I would be a fat girl, which is not really an acceptable thing to be. Um, so she started helping me. We, we dieted together. Um, she would remind me I didn't need second helpings. Um, <laughs> she was really, I think, trying to help me. Um, we went on diets together. The household fridge was always packed with tab and cottage cheese and uh, <laughs> rice cake oh. and all that other stuff. So from a really young age, I was actually secretly binging and I didn't know to call it that, but I was, I was stealing bologna and craft cheese slices from the fridge after school. Um, I remember this is the worst. Um, I was really little, I was probably six and I got up really early so that I could have as much cereal as I wanted without anybody watching me. Um, and the big cereal bowls were pretty high and out of reach, so I had to lift myself up onto the counter of the kitchen in the corner and grab the cereal bowl. And we had just gotten a puppy. <laughs> and when I jumped back down from the counter, I landed right on the puppy and broke his leg. Aww. And it was the poor most poor horrible puppy. sound I'd ever heard in my life, this poor puppy. And my whole family, of course, woke up and, and saw, you know, what I was doing. And it was so embarrassing. And the dog had to be in a cast <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the summer. <laughs> anyway, um, and of course, you, you know, I, imme <laughs> I immediately thought I was too fat. And that's why the dog's leg broke. I mean, it was just uh, terrible. But um but anyway, so it was really early, early on. And then um, as I got older, I started to really just, it cemented in me that if I lost weight and got thin, my life would just be perfect. Um, and then weird things started happening where I developed this kind of obsessive need to have new clothing all the time. Um, I feel, I, I guess I thought the perfect outfit would somehow hide that I was fat uh, or fatter than my peers. Um, and I had this weird sense that I was owed more clothes because I was just, you know, stuck in this unlovable body. And, um, I don't know. And so I would just guilt my mom and beg her to take me shopping and she would flip flop between taking me on these guilt induced shopping sprees or, you know, to like lecturing me about being materialistic and spoiled. Um, and that would just be so embarrassing and shameful, uh, that all I wanted to do was go and eat more. And she would do that with me. We would flip-flop together from diet to, oh, let's go sneak a cheeseburger, you know, together. So it was like this pathology that we shared uh, throughout my childhood. And I even went to fat camp. <laughs> I went to Weight Watchers camp at age 11. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if I, if I had a kid right now, of course, I would never send a slightly chubby 11-year-old to Weight Watchers camp. Um, but at the time, it was the 80s, and actually the diet industry was pretty new back then. Um, Jane Fonda was just, you know, in, in fashion, her, her workout tapes. Um, yeah. and you know, we didn't really understand. I don't think that the diet industry was really all about profiting off of us hating ourselves and that they made the most money because people gained the weight back and all this stuff. None of, none of that was known. Um, so she was really, I think, genuinely trying to help me. And I was so mm -hmm. miserable about it that like, I don't know what I would have done. Right. So I'm not, I'm definitely not pinning this on my mom, but that was our, our pattern. And I don't think she loved her own body very much. Right. So we were mm -hmm. kind of going through these cycles together. And then, um, yeah. And then, I mean, I guess sort of got in the habit of, of patterning my eating to my mom. Um, and then every meal was sort of a chance to get approval if I was good or, uh, 
you know, disapproval if I was bad. Um, I tried to time my bad eating for when my mom was in the mood to be bad. And it was just sort of a lot of dancing around that. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, I had a dad. I haven't talked about him. <laughs> I had a dad and, and uh, he was a really successful neurosurgeon and we were all very privileged. You know, I grew up in New York City um, and went to a private girls school where, you know, all the girls were very rich and very thin. And my dad had sort of just gotten... Uh, successful when I came along. My sister, he was working constantly um, when my sisters were little, but he sort of was able to slow up around the time I got born. (laughs) Um, So I was kind of a daddy's girl. uh, And I think he probably wanted a son, but, um, but I was it. I was, I was sort of the last, (laughs) last chance. Um, And so I saw myself as this sort of last hope for him. So I just clung to him, tried to get his approval. I worked really, really hard to get good grades in school um, I was kind of nerdy uh, and square, but my dad liked that. And he would, you know, take me out on the weekends to go look at art and stuff at art galleries in New York. He got really into collecting art. Anyway, we were really, really tight. Um, and he was sort of, I felt like he and I were more alike than my mom and I were. Uh, or at least I thought that way. Um, but then when uh, I turned 13 and both my sisters were off at college, my dad um, decided to leave my mom for another woman. And he, I mean, there was literally no custody battle, nothing. He just disappeared. He had no interest in, you know, seeing me again. Um, And I literally, I think I saw him once in seven years or maybe twice after that, like when he left when I was 13. So really, I really felt, like I was getting left. I, I know people say it's sort of a cliche about divorce and stuff like that, that kids blame themselves. Um, but for so long, I had felt like I was closer to my dad than my mom was. I had such a daddy's girl complex that when he left, it was very personal. Um, and I felt very invisible. And I was <laughs> at this point, I was I was a heavy 13-year-old with braces, a perm, asymmetrical haircut. Like, there was nothing good going on in terms of how I felt about my looks. So, like, it was, it was like, the most awkward time um, to have one's father leave, I guess. Um, so that was rough. Uh, and that was probably my first big trauma, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, but then my mom went off and lived. We lived together um for the second half of that year, it was around Thanksgiving that my dad left. Um, and so I finished out eighth grade, my mom and me living together alone in an apartment in the West Village. And this is when I realized she was a big drinker and I hadn't noticed it before. And I'm not even sure, I've never really talked to her about it. I'm not even sure if she was a big drinker before. I mean, I knew she was a social drinker, but I don't know if she had a drinking problem before I have no idea but when it was just the two of us in this apartment basically with nobody watching um, and she was obviously very sad about her husband leaving her uh, it was just drinking all the time and she once passed out and couldn't let me into the apartment so I just sort of wandered the streets of New York City by myself um, trying to figure out how to get back into the house because she couldn't answer the phone or or anything Um, so it was a very scary time and it was around then when I was extremely alone I just started dieting like a crazy person I was eating only green vegetables doing more than 100 sit-ups a night it was almost OCD like if I didn't do 100 sit-ups I couldn't sleep Um, and uh, I made the decision that oh sorry my mom made the decision that she wanted to move back to New Jersey where she grew up the next year and didn't want to stay in New York and I didn't want to change school. So I made the decision on my own. It's really weird to apply to boarding schools, <laughs> which I, I did. I got my mom to give me the check for the application fee. I'm not sure how she, cause she tells the story. Like she had no idea what I was doing. Um, but <laughs> anyway, I applied to boarding school um, and I went to one that was um, Uh, where my uncle went, I really didn't know much about boarding school, but my uncle had gone to this one school and my mother's father, my grandfather had gone to the same boarding school and my granny lived nearby the school still, even though my grandfather had passed away. Anyway, so I was like, I'll just go to that school. It'll be great. I'll get out of here. I'll start fresh with everybody else who's starting fresh and that'll solve all my problems. 
Um, so I went to boarding school, and needless to say, boarding school is like a hotbed for girls with eating disorders. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is basically all it is. Um, and uh, there were boys there, too. Um, but, I mean, the, it was just incredible. My two best friends, and they're still my best friends, and they're incredibly healthy around food now. But one was bulimic at the time. The other was anorexic. And I was, I guess, a compulsive overeater. And the three of us were, like, inseparable <laughs> Um, sort of unhappy girls, uh, but we eventually uh, got our stuff together. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, so that was sort of the magical thing that came out of boarding school. But it was a really good decision, I think. My mom did move to New Jersey. She sort of got on with her own life, went back to nursing school, a whole bunch of things. Um, my dad stayed absent. Uh, he ended up marrying the woman that he left my mom for. Uh, and I just sort of kept I don't know, um, working on trying to become thin, you know, it was just sort of, I, I knew I would never get a boyfriend or fall in love or have a life if I stayed bigger. Um, and boarding school really reinforced that for me. Um, so I guess, uh, oh, and I, I have to tell the story. I'm going to go backwards a little bit. Um, between my freshman and sophomore year at boarding school, uh, I had to have jaw surgery because I had a pronounced underbite. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, my, my mom took, you know, took me there um, to the hospital and I, and I, she was so excited for me because I was obviously going to lose a lot of weight with my jaw wired shut and she wished she could have her jaw wired shut too. And, and, um, and when I woke up from the surgery, the doctor, there was this young, handsome doctor and he and I kind of had a crush on him, I guess. And he told me to get out of bed. And I was like, oh, well, I just got out of surgery. I just threw up in my mouth, you know, with this wired shut jaw. Like, I'm not feeling like getting out of bed. He's like, no, 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 get out of bed. Just come here and look in the mirror. And I did. And, and he sort of, you know, put his hand on my chin and moved my face around and said, look, look at how much more feminine you look like. You're almost pretty. Oh. And <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and, and I was like, yay. I hadn't realized I looked masculine before. <laughs> so I had this new thing that was, you know, something I was supposed to feel bad about. And and then I went to recuperate right, and on like little codependent yeah. girls that we are. Did you like thank him for his evaluation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, and thank you for helping me. Become yeah. a girl. Thanks for the compliment. <laughs> ah, ah. That was awful. <laughs> um, and then that summer, I went to go recover at my granny's cottage on Lake Sunapee in New Hampshire. And my mom sort of came and visited periodically. It was about six or eight weeks. Um, and my granny was great. She was like, here's Moby Dick. Go read this, you know, and recover. <laughs> I'm just going to do whatever I'm doing. And I was like, great. And actually, weirdly, I thought I would be able to talk through my j- wired shut jaw, but I really couldn't. I was like, it was really bad. Um, so I was just drinking um, coffee, ice cream, milkshakes the whole time. So I didn't actually lose all that much weight. Um, but I did think I was losing some weight. And I remember my mom came to visit and we all went up to what was called the big house where my aunt lived um, and her son, my cousin and his friends all from Harvard. They were all young college boys. They were all at the house that weekend and um, I couldn't talk to anybody, but the (laughs) boys were all fascinated by me. They were talking to me, asking me questions, surrounding me, following me around. And I had never had so much male attention in my whole life. Um, and then after that night, I was saying something like that to my mom, who could at that point sort of understand what I was saying through my wired shut jaw. And she she said, well, let that be a lesson to you. Like, <laughs> people <laughs> like you more when you don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> She totally meant it as a joke, I think. But I was like, oh, my God. Like, even my personality is not going to save me from this (laughs) miserable (laughs) life. (laughs) 
you know, I've been trying so hard to be funny and smart and all those other things to make up for my obvious lack on the body side. And there I was like being told that I shouldn't even talk. So I, oh, it God. was very, it was tough um, mentally or emotionally or whatever. Um, so I really, those things stuck with me. I was a very anxious, sensitive person, still am. Um, but as a little kid, my mom's favorite story about me was when I was learning to stand up, I would crawl, you know, put my hands up on the bars in the crib and look around. And then unlike a, a normal kid who would just drop back down, um, I apparently looked around for a while <laughs> looked down at my feet and then lowered myself back down really slowly. So apparently <laughs> I've been an anxious, nervous person since forever. Yeah. So it's not like totally surprising um, that this is sort of how I ended up. But um, anyway, so by the time I graduated from high school, I had a few like truths that I lived by. One was that girls for girls being thin was sort of the baseline for being loved um, that my father was able to leave me because I was invisible to him um, and that fat teenage girls were basically invisible. No amount of smarts or talent were going to make a difference um, in terms of lovableness or worthiness, um, even though I worked on all that stuff. Um, I was training to be an opera singer in high school. Uh, I was like really uh, trying to develop myself outside of my looks um, you know, almost like a guy playing the guitar to try to get girls, you know, like I was really trying to figure out like what my angle was going to be, it was probably going to be a little bit fashion, a little bit music. Um, and uh, yeah. So when I graduated from high school, my granny the one who I stayed with um, gave me $5,000. She gives this to all of the grandchildren when they graduate from high school. And I took that money and I immediately handed it right over to Nutrisystem. I don't know if you've ever heard of Nutrisystem, but I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a diet program. And at the time it was very expensive. It was like this fancy thing where they gave you food every week and you <laughs> it was all dehydrated patties of things and you would like rehydrate them and put them in the microwave or whatever. Um, and I, over that summer, I was determined to lose weight so that when I started college, I would look good and I would finally get a boyfriend and I would finally be okay. Right. Like life would start finally. So I did, I lost like 30, 35 pounds that summer. I got down to a size eight or a size 10, which was well in the normal range. And I had just believed that a size 14 was not acceptable. Um, so I was down to an eight ten, and, um, I got out of the meal plan at, at my school because I was doing this diet and it was so important for my health that I stay on this diet. So I didn't <laughs> have to do the meal plan. Um, but college is really when I started drinking, um, and really escaping. Um, I got a really, really handsome boyfriend my freshman year. Um, and it was ridiculous. I, could not believe it happened. And it was so validating. Like that was all that mattered to me up until that point. I just believed looks were kind of everything. It, it was so strange because I was so critical of myself. Uh, it really transferred into how I treated other people and it's gross, right? It's this horrible superficial life. Um, but it's really hard to not right? to not think that looks matter um, when you're constantly criticizing yourself. It just creates this superficial way of thinking Anyway, there I was, like, just gaga over this incredibly handsome boy who, of course, eventually dumped me. Um, and then I started gaining the weight back, um, gained all the weight back, plus some. Um, and the rest of college really was just a series of overly complicated friendships with men that, I, you know, I was madly in love with but didn't tell them and all this other stuff. Um, and I gained the weight, and I started drinking a lot more and uh, kind of exploring I don't know, sex and uh, being a woman, what I, what I thought about it, but it was all totally entwined with drinking. Like I did, I was such an anxious person to begin with drinking, like got me out of that and allowed me to flirt and have fun. Um, I totally gave up singing, didn't do any singing at all other than to like, I don't know, playing guitar and singing a couple of songs if it would make me seem attractive. Like it was just all it was, was drinking and, and doing some schoolwork. Um, and then my 20s, I moved, and I gained all this weight back. So when I, in my 20s, right after college, I moved to San Francisco. And literally my whole 20s, this is how, like, I don't know, blurry my life becomes. Like, it just became dieting or not dieting cycles. 
buying clothes, putting myself into credit card debt, trying to figure out my career, overeating, dieting, again, trying to get a boyfriend, um, renting apartments I couldn't afford. I mean, it was just this sort of endless cycle in my 20s, which I think is probably something that's relatable by other people. Um, But for me, that diet binge cycle sort of defines it too. Uh, And it just, it, it feels like it was just a hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. where I didn't really make that much progress, but, I, you know, I got dates and I got jobs, so <laughs> I sort of survived my 20s, but I didn't feel like I was heading anywhere, even though all I really, really wanted was some man to pick me up, fall in love with me, and marry me, right? Like, that was just sort of how I thought the world was supposed to, my life was supposed to go, and it wasn't. When I uh, Then I moved back to New York City. I had a good job, but I was in a massive credit card debt. Um, I was heavier than I'd ever been. I had an expensive apartment on the Upper West Side that I was, it was just, I was a mess. Um, but it looked on the outside like I was doing pretty well other than my weight. Um, and I decided at 29, I, I had to lose the weight once and for all yet again because 30 was my deadline. I would never be falling in love and getting married and having kids and doing all the things I wanted to do if I stayed overweight. It just wasn't going to happen. So I had to lose the weight. So I went on the Atkins diet. And this is where, like, I think my drinking really turned a corner because I would, you know, skip breakfast, have a salad with protein at lunch, and then I would have, like, salami and a piece of brie for dinner with a bottle or two of red wine at night. And I was like, this wine is delicious. It's making me feel good. I'm not hungry. It's great. Yeah, I'm hungover and have horrible stomach issues every day, but this is how I'm going to lose weight. And I did. I lost so much weight. I lost a lot of weight really quickly. And I was like, yay, I'm here. I'm finally here. I'm an adult. I have a good job. I might have a little credit card debt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And wine became my thing. I just started, I fell madly in love with wine. And that was part of my personality. And of course I was, sorry, I forgot to mention, I've been smoking throughout all of this. I'm trying to quit once in a while, but smoking a pack a day probably at this point. Um, And I just felt very glamorous, uh, you know, having this lifestyle on the Upper West Side that, of course, I couldn't afford, but, like, it was glamorous anyway (laughs) in my head. Um, But then I met some guy, uh, and, of course, everything was – it was all about validating myself with this man, right, or a man, some magical hypothetical man. And I met this guy who fell madly in love with me. He lived in Washington State, worked for Microsoft, and I just – couldn't believe he was madly in love with me. And I was just so happy to finally be there at that stage of life. Um, And so I just moved to Seattle for him. Um, And about six weeks after moving here, I realized it was a terrible mistake. He was a really controlling, scary person. And I had to sneak out to move out. And I did, um, but I didn't have any money left over from the move and everything else to move back to New York. So I just stayed in Seattle. And that was, that's now like 13 years ago. Uh, hmm. But it was around that time that I just really started drinking daily. And so that's 13 years ago. So when people talk about like, or when I talk about being such a high bottom, it's completely ridiculous. Like I was drinking heavily almost daily for the last at least 12 years. So um, I just didn't want to own it or think about it. Um, anyway, and then I, then I'll skip ahead a few years. And when I was 36, I got diagnosed with cancer. Um, it was endometrial cancer and I was at the time still smoking a pack a day, probably drinking a bottle of wine at least every other day. Um, and I was convinced I'd given myself this cancer, uh, and I had this huge cloud of shame and I was sure I was going to die. Um, and you know, after the surgery, they were able to stage it, (laughs) And the surgery was a hysterectomy, so I wasn't, I was no longer able to have kids, and I was single at the time. And the whole thing was very hard and depressing and scary. Um, and until I had the surgery, I really didn't know whether I was advanced or not stage. Um, so I had all these thoughts where I was just promising God and myself and whatever that I would love my body finally, I would treasure it because it can move and I'm alive and it's amazing and I would quit smoking and I'd become healthy and I would add turmeric to everything I eat and I, I just had a million <laughs> different like, rule things that I had planned. And then I had the surgery that they were like, oh, we, you were able to keep your ovaries. It's fine. It was only stage 1A. You're basically cured. 
And I just went right back. I went right back out and just started drinking and smoking, and I was in total denial uh, about what had just happened to me. I ended up meeting some guy who went, who was a pretty bad alcoholic, and we almost got married. And one month before the wedding, I called it off because I realized he was an alcoholic, and it's kind of ironic. But he was an alcoholic, and I was didn't want to spend my life babysitting him. I wanted to be able to go out and drink as much as I wanted and not have to babysit him. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I get it. No, you needed a yeah. codependent husband, not a, uh, uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah. An enabler. Exactly. You didn't want to be his exactly. enabler. Exactly. I didn't want to help him. Um, so when I broke up with him and, you know, canceled the wedding, that was pretty crazy. Um, but uh, I just started drinking in earnest and I got a job that fully enabled it. I was working from home. Um, for an East Coast company, and work was over at two or three in the afternoon, my time. Um, so I just started drinking earlier and earlier in the day. Um, then I met my husband, my now husband, who I mean, despite all of this, like he liked me, um, and I was just head over heels for him properly, like very early. Um, and we dated for a while, and then I sort of kept my drinking at bay with him. He was not a big drinker. Uh, but he was, you know, periodically he would drink and, um, and then we got married and I blacked out sort of the very tail end of my wedding, which is really lovely. Um, and then the first couple of years of our marriage were me sitting out on the porch. It's not funny. I, I just was, it, it wasn't what I thought it would be, you know, all those years. That's why I sort of told this lengthy, you know, billion hour story about my whole life all those years I fantasized about this thing that was going to finally validate me and make me whole this marriage thing being loved by a man it wasn't working (laughs) I was I still felt broken I still felt not worthy I still felt fat and ugly I still didn't know the answer to all of my problems um, and so I just escaped and he, he was home a lot. And I, I sort of said, I just needed my space. And so I would sit on the front porch and smoke cigarettes and drink bottles of wine. And this is when it was really truly daily drinking. And I would forget half of what was said before I would go to bed at eight, which my excuse for going to bed at eight every night, meaning passing out at eight was, uh, I had to get up so early for my East coast job. So I had to be in bed by eight. So I had to drink earlier because <laughs> I didn't have all night to drink. I had right. to go to bed. So I totally I get that. To start drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So I get that. I was every single day, two bottles of wine, maybe bottle and a half. Um, he dealt with the recycling that was part of our marriage deal. And he was just like, Oh my good Lord. Like, and, and I really prided myself on not hiding it and not lying about it. And then somewhere around the end of 26, 2015, I started hiding it and lying about it and driving when I drank and doing all these things that I was just like, no, 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 no. I can't believe I'm doing this. But I, I felt like I had to, cause I was losing all credibility with my husband. Like I couldn't complain about anything because I was always drinking and he didn't want to hear anything unless I was sober. And I just got rageful about it. And then I was just convinced we were going to get divorced. And that was when I actually decided to quit. Cause I was like, I have to have a clear head if I'm getting divorced. <laughs> Um, if I'm going to make this decision to end this marriage, I better be clear about it. Um, and weirdly, when I stopped drinking, we stopped fighting and I stopped feeling what? so rageful. I know. <laughs> I know. Funny. And it was so weird. Um, but uh, yeah, so I credit him being sort of a jerk for a while uh, with me quitting drinking. But but that's how that happened. And then, uh, then when, you know, back to the beginning, when I finally had quit drinking and I joined all these classes and groups and all this stuff, I had this big gaping hole of like trying to figure out my body issues and my worthiness issues. And I didn't really know where to start. And I, so I did what I did with drinking is I started reading a bunch of books. And the thing that really just to kind of get at why this was so hard, um, you know, quitting drinking was a revelation. Like every day that passed, I felt better. Every day that passed, I wanted booze less. Um, same thing with cigarettes. Every day that passed, I thought about it less. Um, I didn't notice it every day, but 
you know, a week would go by and I would just say, oh my gosh, I, I didn't think about drinking that day, you know, mm-hmm, and it was, mm-hmm. it was magical. It was like, oh my gosh, I really don't have to think about this the rest of my life. It doesn't have to be one day at a time struggle. I'm not scared of it anymore. I can commit to it forever. It's, it's magical. But that never happened to me with food. If I gave up sugar, it wasn't like one day I had forgotten entirely about sugar. Like mm-hmm. restricting food, never, it never let up. The, the, in fact, every time I restricted anything, carbohydrates, fats, you know, calories, um, sugar, it didn't let up. Like it got worse. It was like a rubber band tightening. And then mm-hmm. I would eventually, you know, break and, and binge and think, oh, God, I better start my diet tomorrow. So if I'm starting my diet tomorrow, I better eat all the sugar I can possibly eat today because this is my last chance mm-hmm. before I start restricting again. And I was p- mad. I was sitting there thinking, this isn't fair. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to abstain from food, lose weight, feel as free as I feel from alcohol and cigarettes. And it should just all work the same because everyone says you can be addicted to food, right? They all say it's, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just another mm-hmm. thing that you're addicted to. But it just doesn't – my life doesn't bear that out. It's different. And so I really wanted to figure out why it's different. Like why is this different? Why is it just different for me if it's just different for me? Or why is it different for other people if it is? Um, and I came across a bunch of different resources where I learned a lot about um, – how our bodies are designed, how food is different from a drug, how our brains respond, you know, might respond to sugar like it responds to cocaine or alcohol or whatever. But the reality is um, it's not actually a drug. You don't, like, learn to want food. You're actually born wanting food. And so Mm -hmm. you can't, like, get rid of that want by just Mm -hmm. not doing it, right? It's, It's fundamentally different. And our bodies are so wired to keep us alive they just are. They're not wired to prevent us from being ugly. They're not wired to keep us from getting fat. They're wired to keep us from starving. And so everything about like what we do with food, it, our body's fighting us if we're trying to restrict it. And, and it's different from alcohol or cigarettes or drugs. It just is. Does, mm-hmm. it, does it mean that all the tools of quitting drinking and smoking aren't applicable? I have no idea. Probably not. But like I'm coming to this incredible realization that it is different and there are other ways to free myself from that. So that's exciting. That's huge. And just, you know, from the, from the story you were able to just tell and the things you picked out from your childhood, like clearly you've worked hard on your recovery this year because you are able to look (laughs) back and see where some of this stuff started to take root, which is huge, but like, and you're at the point of like, okay, what do I do with it? Right. I've got, I'm figuring it out, but I still have to do something with it. I wrote down uh, three pages of notes while you were talking. Um, and I have to laugh because I, I didn't realize. This. I feel like I just talked. <laughs> we have 10 minutes left. So, oh my God. Okay. Um, but you, you're riveting. It's fine. It's good. It's what we're here for. Um, first of all, just coincidentally, we have a lot in common. I'm the third daughter. Uh, always thought I must be a disappointment to my parents that I wasn't a boy. I convinced my parents to let me go to boarding school for high school because um, I wanted a new beginning. I wanted out of my town. I, and they thought, this is great, like as a teenager once. So I, I, I just I couldn't wow. believe it as you were telling your story. And I, I'm wondering, like, we should do a survey, you know, how many of us are the youngest? How many of us were trying to please our dads and ended up feeling rejected by that? Um, how many of us were along for the ride on our mom's body image roller coaster, you know? Yeah. Um, um, but in the interest of time, rather than wow. talking about me. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I didn't know that about you. That's No, incredible. isn't that crazy? Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah I wrote, uh, also a singer and also did the guitar playing thing. And um, <laughs> But uh, so many, I wrote down so many questions. So you, you really talked a lot about trying to create an image for yourself, like as a young person, as a working person, as a, and even ultimately like assuming that uh, marrying a man was going to fix, you know, like was going to be the last plug that last puzzle piece in for you. And, um, and I kept writing down the word codependence because um, 
in terms of like, and not that I'm diagnosing you, but I'm, I'm <laughs> seeing what I realized okay. in myself, which was that I was always looking for the answer. Who do I need to be for you? Who do I need to be to fit in? How do I need to look? How, how do other people see me? Because that's who I thought, that's how I thought I became what I wanted to become, but it's an inside job, right? Like you, at the end of the day, you realized I can't find this in my husband. I'm still not happy because it's an inside job. It's, no one else can do that for you. And so being caught in that cycle of trying to, you know, dance as fast as you can and be who the world keeps telling you they want you to be. Um, and I think maybe as youngest kids, like we're more like that. Like I also very anxious person because like as the youngest, I would watch, I would see what everybody else was doing. And then I would try to slip into the action. Right. Yeah. So that I, I wasn't yeah. like a little tag along. Find a role in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I see it with my own son. Like the, I have three sons and my youngest son is someone who like, he doesn't like to see people, have people see him learning how to do something. He just wants to be able to like suddenly do it. He never like wants to be mm-hmm. seen in the learning role. Like I just want to be able to do this, you know, like he didn't want oh, to drive, take driving lessons with the driver's ed thing on the car. You just want to be able to drive. So you can just sort of slip in unnoticed. So I'm just wondering how common that is, right? Just as you were saying, me it, too. having the me too, me too feeling. Um, and I guess, uh, so one question that comes of this and, and that thing of, of feeling like love was going to fix it or like you, were, you could be validated by a relationship. But now that your relationship has like sort of survived that test, <laughs> I guess, and evolved into a more like honest relationship, how does that kind of love and acceptance feel? How is that different than what you thought you were looking for? Oh my gosh. That's such a good question. And I haven't really, I feel like that's a box I haven't ticked off in terms of, you know, self-reflection, but, um, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing actually. Um, but I've gone through all these different stages. When I first quit drinking, I had all these expectations that um, uh, that I would figure out I married a horrible person and that I have to get divorced. And then when that didn't turn out to be true, I had to sort of re-meet him or relearn him um, mm-hmm. and not – because, I mean, I was very, I think, very self-obsessed, right? Like it, he was supposed to fix me. I, I wasn't thinking about who did I marry, not in the right. way that – one healthy person might, but I, I knew I liked him and I found him really attractive, but it kind of all started again. Like, I feel like the whole thing, the whole relationship kind of restarted. And, um, yeah, I guess in the last year and change, um, you know, we've learned how to communicate better. And in the beginning it was about my sobriety and me trying to tell him what was going on. Um, which was tricky because he was like, you don't really have to quit, do you? Right. The typical <laughs> husband, he's not a big drinker. And he was like, you don't really have to do that. You can just moderate. And I was like, oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to tell him that I'd been trying to do that for so long. So I didn't. I was like, oh, yeah, nope, this is a good health kick. Quitting altogether is better for me. I'm very extreme. You know, like I painted yeah. all these <laughs> bizarre pictures of myself. Um and, and so I think it's just been a slow, like, revealing of who I am to him, right? These sort of core things that I had been covering up for so long. I'm discovering who I am and in the, you know, while I'm doing that, kind of sharing it with him, but also really figuring out who he is. Um, and I'd already given myself this permission to sort of just leave him, right? Like, I'd gone there in my head already, and I'd only just married him, right? So I, I was already there. So I was like, well, okay, you know, what's short of that? Like, okay, well, I'll just figure out who he is. Do I really, am I really in love with him? Or was that a drunken haze that I, you know, flew through or some kind of completely driven by my desire to be validated, right? Like what, what was, I, I was questioning myself. The whole thing I was questioning. Um, do you think, so do you I think that's really like the flip about side of about like, him. Right. Which is, I've, I've kind of gone through a similar revelation and I'm, after as you're talking about this, I'm sort of having this epiphany that it's like, it's the flip side of codependence. Like if we believe that we only are defined as others see us, then by definition, we live in a world where other people are only defined by how we see them. Right. 
but we don't go yeah. that deep to figure it out. But like, so you wanted your husband to be like, well, you thought you had him figured out. So he's only defined by what you think of him. Mm-hmm. And as we like start to accept ourselves more, it opens up this new layer of truth of where, okay, this person, there's, this person is, has a truth that I get to discover. Yeah. It's not he defined by life and personality. It's weird. Yeah. And that you're, <laughs> like, you're safe to be that, right? Like you're just, yeah. you're safe to be you and you can accept him as him. And like for a normal person, as you say, I'm using air quotes, normal person for someone who doesn't <laughs> yeah. have this perspective. And my, my husband is very much that kind of a person. I suspect you, yours is too, because I think that's what we're attracted to. It's, people who yeah. we were attracted to that kind of stability in a way. And um, so for them, they're like, what, what? <laughs> because they're yeah. so solid in who they are. But if you're ashamed, so true. Like, if you yeah. are like that little girl who's trying to be seen and trying to be pleasing and try to be, you know, like trying to make up for what you think is some like lost birthright or something like you just, it's, it's, it's really hard to accept that you can just be so Anyway, I yeah. I feel like like I could just hear that coming through in what you were saying, and um, and then the other thing that yeah. I I jotted down as you were talking about your mom, and like mm. you know the tab in the fridge, <laughs> <laughs> which every woman our age kind of can understand, um, uh, uh, is that you know the Brene Brown. Um, idea of the shame identity and that we were, we're taught that as a child. And so, um, you know, those of us that were raised in the, in the age of, um, as Christy Coulter wrote a great um, piece called Anjali that was sort of about. I love that piece. Right. That it was a commercial in the seventies. I can bring home the bacon fried up in a pan and never let you forget Mm -hmm. your man. And I remember being like 10 years old and thinking like, Roger, that, that's how I'm supposed to look. Oh, I watched Charlie's Angels. Got it. That's how I'm supposed to, I got to run in high heels. Okay. Um, Like I just watched Love Boat. Oh, okay. That's it. Romance. Got it. That's how I, that's how that works. And, and then my mom, like, I think a lot of us too, like our, our moms were sort of victims of the clever marketing of that age and we just absorbed it unquestioningly and it became our truth our shame identity um of our bodies and okay it's so we think it's normal and um because it's just the the truth that we sort of are marinated in in our childhoods whether whatever that is you know like yeah whether it's body image or someone that grows up in a home with violence or just you know mental illness or whatever whatever their your normal is growing up, then you develop your shame identities around that. And, um, and now here you are unpacking all that and being like, wait a minute, what if that's not true? Holy, right. what if my whole life right. I've been like trying to tap dance to this, you know, prescription that isn't yeah. even a true thing. Um, yeah. So, okay. I'm not asking you the... questions. I'm just commenting on no, everything no. you're saying I mean, I think... because it was so amazing. I think that was the magical thing when I started to actually feel no shame anymore after quitting drinking. Like that was the immediate feeling I had. I was embarrassed by stuff I did. I made mistakes, but I didn't feel shame every day anymore. And that was Mm -hmm. the thing that sort of lifted as quickly, you know, really early on when I stopped drinking. Um, And then I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, I don't have to feel this about food anymore either. Right. Like, right. (laughs) That's a possibility. And yeah. it was only, it, that was the first time I started to think, like, is that a possibility? And the woman, I've been taking a class called Stop Fighting Food by Isabel Fox and Duke. I will absolutely, I recommend anybody that has food or eating issues um, or body issues, I think, is really the fundamental thing. Body okay, hatred, that again. et cetera. Isabel What's Fox and Duke. Isabel Fox and Duke. Okay. And it's called Stop Fighting Food. And okay. One one of the nuggets in one of her lectures was this notion that, like, you're trying to control your weight because you're really trying to control how other people see you. Oh. You want other people to, you know, see you a certain way. And actually, you can't do that. Just, like, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You can't actually control what other people see. So, okay, her website is, the website is stopfightingfood.com. Is it? I think yes. I think Isabel Fox and Duke is also another one. Yes, it I think is. it's her F-O-X-E-N. blog or something. E N Duke. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, she has a blog too. So there's. 
websites there. And um, it's pretty phenomenal. Like some of the little things that she's like, you really can't do it. And then of course there's the, all the science that's coming out now about like how dieting makes you fatter and you can't lower your set point weight anyway. And, you know, fat phobia is driving so much of the healthiest stuff. Anyway, um, I could go on forever about that, but like this whole control idea um, really struck me. Um, Cause I was like, Oh yeah, that is what I'm trying to do. And actually I can't do that anyway. I can't fix what people see. Right. Um, which sucks, right? Like, oh, wait. <laughs> I cannot control yeah. what you think. That's manipulation. People pleasing, that's manipulation too. Damn it. That was my whole strategy. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, but I have a quick question for you. So I myself have been guilty of um, telling people in early recovery to go ahead and use sugar um, to beat their alcohol cravings because it does trigger the same pleasure reward circuitry as alcohol. Yep. So it's, it's, it really can negate an alcohol craving. Um, so, you yep. know, my apologies. That, no, no, um, wait, I've come full circle on that. Okay. So I've tell me where you're at with that back. now. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I mean, in the beginning, that's how I felt. Now I'm more like, yeah. Do that. Say that. Make people confront this. Because my fear was around getting fat. It wasn't like I wasn't mad at everybody because, you know, I thought it was unhealthy, you know, or (laughs) there was something, you know, faulty about the advice. I was mad because everybody was basically triggering my my weight gain anxiety. And I felt bad about that. And don't you think like when you. It's not bad advice. Because it actually right. is true. If you just eat whatever you want, you'll eat a lot less anyway, right? Like, first of all, that's just, yeah. everybody knows that. Like, if you're restricting, you're going to binge. Like, but if you just eat exactly what you want, whatever you want, your body will just regulate itself. It'll stop eventually. And that's what everyone said, right? Like, don't worry about it too much. It'll, it'll regulate itself over time. But I didn't believe it because I came from such crap in my history that okay. I was just like, no, 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 you're just starting me down this path, and I'm going to get fatter, and nobody's going to love me ever again. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> extreme. <laughs> extreme, extreme. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, I really do think the advice is right. I think for someone who's got eating disorders in their background, there might be a way to nuance it that mm-hmm. helps those people through that stage of early, you know, uh, quitting drinking and all those cravings that can be so triggering and so scary once you yeah. think you've sort of gotten past all that, especially if you're in your forties and you're like, I don't talk about dieting anymore. This isn't part of my, my lifestyle, but Oh sh- crap. <laughs> it's coming yeah. up again. And, it, sure and, it and is. I think that's, yeah. And that, so that there's gotta be a way I'm thinking thing too, right. The, yeah. That like you, yeah. okay. There's a fine line between negating cravings and just transferring your addiction to something right. else, you know, and, right. um, you know, we tell people like to find a comfort. So like that might be just like rubbing the inside of your arm, but like, don't go out and screw your neighbor's husband to feel better. <laughs> right. Like that's a whole other maladaptive yeah. coping skill. So there's always that fine yeah. line, um, of trying to find like what's going to help you through that moment. But I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm glad you clarified that because I really was worried for a minute there that I was doing something harmful. Um, no, I it's not harmful. You. It's just eye-opening. It's more like, you know, oh, my God, now I have another. It is whack-a-mole. I was like, I was kind of more angry that I had to deal with it. Yeah. Deal right. with my reaction to it. Well, and there's a lot but, of anger in early recovery, too, don't you find? That, <laughs> yeah, you know, definitely. like there's a lot of a lot of repressed anger in anxiety, I think, and um, fear of letting it out and like. Like, yeah, okay, if I'm going to get fat and I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life, I'm going to, I'm going to be mad. If I let people know how angry I really am, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just going to control and everything. yeah, I got I'm mad at everything. I was mad at 12-step programs. I was mad at, like, I was mad at everything. I, yeah. My husband, obviously. I was mad, you know, mad at food and sugar. I, the whole thing, I was rageful. And then, yeah. you know, it sort of lifts. And looking back, I mean, it was probably the best advice I got because it kind of sent me down this path to evaluate my messed up relationship with food and my body. So it was great. Well, you are an absolute delight and I love talking to you. We're over an hour now, so we (laughs) have to wrap up. (laughs) Well, thank you. It was, it was 
it's kind of a relief to say it all. It was great. Thank you. Therapeutic. Your, your blog is totalfatty.com, a very provocative yep. name. You want to reclaim the name fatty. Um, and yeah. uh, I read I read in your bio that it's a, it's a play on total hottie. So... Um, <laughs> If you want to read more of Ingrid's, if you want to read more of Ingrid's story, and you're a great writer, I I really enjoy your blog. It's totalfatty.com, and also you can listeners, you can email me thebubblehour at gmail.com if there's anything you'd like like me to pass on to Ingrid for you, or you can reach her by commenting on her blog. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my my heart for your honesty and vulnerability, and um, I just. I just want to comfort you when you talk about your early years and, and some of the stuff you go through. I like just, you know, it just reminds mm-hmm. me that we just need to be kind to each other and comfort each other. Cause you know, otherwise yeah. we find other ways to do that. So. That is so very thank, true. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and um, listeners. Um, thank you for, for being, um, part of the bubble hour and um, part of the cycle. And maybe if you're like Ingrid, you may one day um, want to pay it forward by being a guest on the show and telling your story as well. Um, I guess that's everything for today. Uh, visit Ingrid at totalfatty.com. Visit me at unpickledblog.com. And um, thank you for listening to the bubble hour. And you'll find all of our archives at blogtalkradio.com slash bubble hour. So that's it for this episode. And um, thank you, Ingrid, and everyone. Until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free.